Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing, you know, I'm doing okay. It's the end of the session, so it's obviously just like uh, gut punch wild. after gut punch and like terrible things yeah. happening, fast and yep. furious, and not even being able to pay attention about what's going on and everything. So uh, that's that's what we're going to be talking about during this part of the show. But I did want to say before we get started that we have Jim Higdon on the show today. Uh, Jim Higdon is, uh, well, I guess these days most of what he does is that he owns a CBD company called Cornbread Hemp. We may have heard of it before uh they advertise on other podcasts uh they they're you know they do really well uh for for their for their business so that's what he does most of the time but you know i got to know him first as a writer uh he he's, he wrote a really great uh book called cornbread mafia which is about the drug trade in kentucky in a lot of like the the 70s and 80s very good book he also has written a book about portland kentucky he's a really good journalist has been writing about stuff for a long time so anyways we had him on to talk about marijuana it was a good conversation uh we talked about that and we, we talked about uh, legalization and agriculture um yeah I, I really had a good time what did you think jasmine yeah i always learn a lot when he's been on the show he's been on once before and he's just so knowledgeable about it i mean he doesn't need any show prep he just he just comes in no notes and i always learn a lot from him yeah you know he's like uh we asked him a question about delta eight which if that you know you should listen to the second half of the show and learn what that is but uh you know i didn't really know what it was i just see it advertised on sandwich boards on uh shops at, on along bardstown road uh and he went through <laughs> like he went through like the, the the entire like chemical process for how to create it and like why his company doesn't make it but why it's a good idea for i mean it was really i mean it's good it's good stuff you should listen to it if you're interested in marijuana either the movement to legalize it um or the i mean i thought that the conversation about agriculture was really good too so anyways um yeah that's the second half of the show but the first half of the show we're going to talk about all this terrible stuff that's been going on in uh in kentucky with all these bills that passed um we are recording today march the 30th which is day 28 of the legislative session um there are a thousand bills that are passing uh right and left all over the place um so we are not up to date for things that have happened today on the 30th i may like try to check joe sanka's twitter while you're talking and see if we can't um you know capture some of the things that are passing today but we did talk about all the things that passed yesterday and we're going to start by talking about the budget so let's go ahead and dive into that a little bit so jasmine the main job of the legislature during even numbered years is to set the budget for the biennium that's uh not a surprise to anybody who pays attention to this uh closely this year like every other even year session the house and senate passed different sets of bills which have to come together in a conference in order to then be passed by their individual chambers however since the entire process is controlled by the republicans this process got uh, almost entirely finished behind closed doors so you know the way that this is supposed to work is the governor gives the budget address and then the chambers themselves like take that budget that the governor puts together and then make their own changes and pass that. But this year, of course, and as we've talked about before, the government's budget wasn't even really a starting place. Uh, you know, the governor's budget address was preempted by the GOP's revealing of their own priorities. The House released their budget before the governor could even give his budget address. However, I do think that many of the governor's education and government worker salary priorities were at least addressed in the budget. And it's hard to say if they would have been otherwise 
I don't think the legislature went quite as far. I, I know the legislature didn't go quite as far as Governor Bashir wanted them to, but they at least addressed a lot of these. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say whether or not they would have if they had had the chance to just ignore it. So just some details. First of all, the GOP budget increases SEEK funding from $4,000 a student to $4,200 over two years. It funds transportation for schools at 70% and then fully funds full day kindergarten. The governor's budget funded transportation at 100% and called for a SEEK increase to $4,500 and then also called for universal pre-K, not just full day kindergarten for the children that already qualify. So that's kind of the difference between what the governor had asked for and what eventually was actually in the budget. This budget also calls for an 8% raise for all state workers in the first year of the biennium, followed by a 12% raise the year after, which is a lot more than what was actually either in the, the bill that the House or Senate passed originally. So this got actually got some momentum, and there were some raises, larger raises than were expected in the budget that was revealed yesterday. In addition, social workers are getting uh, $2,400 extra on top of those extra raises that we just mentioned, and some judicial workers are getting a $2,000 pay increase. Public defenders across the state also get to split $7 million in additional money for salaries. There wasn't a lot of detail about how that was going to get split up across the state. The budget, though, did not require salary increases for teachers, which is something that the governor's budget did mandate. So again, uh, the Republicans did go quite a ways in increasing salaries for people who desperately needed an increase in their pay. uh, And our state desperately needed for those people to have an uh, an increase in pay so that we could actually hire people into those jobs. But they did not go as far as the governor suggested, or even that our budget would have allowed us to do. Just a couple of other notes, $200 million is going to be spent on the Kentucky Fairgrounds, $250 million in additional Uh, KERS pension funding, and 100 additional slots for the Michelle P. waiver. The Michelle P. waiver is a really important tool that the state has for helping people uh, that have intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, For the people that qualify for it, it's really life-changing. For the families of people who have it, it is just, I mean, it's a a life changer. Um, You know, I used to know somebody that worked uh, in this program, and it is really amazing what this thing is able to do for families. Uh, and, And, you know, it's just hard to qualify. Not everybody who has a family member uh, with this, with one of these uh, qualifying diagnoses, gets get, gets access to it. So the more slots that we can open for the open up for this, the better. And this budget does fund 100 additional slots for it. Samara Hevron, who I think is like the youngest member of the legislature, I think she's from like between here and Cincinnati. Uh, she had a bill that would have provided 14 million dollars in matching funds for workplaces that provide funding for employee childcare, and that bill actually got put into the budget. So that they are going to fund 14 million dollars in matching funds for workplaces. That's that's awesome. That's great news. Um, you know. I wish we could have done more and we could have done more, but it's good to have what we have. And then also we are funding $250 million for the rainy day fund, which already has a billion dollars in it. You know, could have doubled the amount of money that we spent on childcare, but you know, whatever. Okay. So Jasmine, I I don't know. In many ways, I think the budget is more generous than I expected. Um, And because of that, you know, some, but not all of the tax relief proposals that the Republicans wanted to include were removed. The, the structural changes, they seem to be on the way to passage, which that's like the 1% cut in the income tax with triggers to introduce, to reduce the income tax even further if more revenue gets put into the budget. Um, so th- those are like structural changes. And by that, I mean like they're permanent. They aren't like 
uh, the other idea that the Republicans had was for a rebate, which would have been like one time you would have gotten money, but the tax rate would have been the same. So this is actually permanent. That would go that that that's what the Republicans are doing. Um, there are also now some some increases in sales taxes on services. We went into the list of what those services were in a previous show, but as a reminder, there are things like Ubers and taxis, bodyguards, Airbnbs and VRBO units, uh, people who want to dock their boats, and non medically necessary cosmetic surgery. Those um, those are the types of things that are not subject to the sales tax now that would be subject to the sales tax. So that's additional revenue that would come in. There's a lot of talk about how sales taxes are regressive, but I do think that this is a list that that tries to target services um, that are things that are a little bit a little bit more luxurious. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm okay with those yeah. things being taxed. Yeah, and, and we talked about this in the past, but there's just like that's not going to bring in as much revenue as taxing things like food or healthcare. Taxing food or healthcare, though has a lot of regressive principles. And in addition to the list of services, they did kind of shoehorn in a tax on electric vehicles. Um, that's not great from like a climate change perspective, but also probably like, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have supported that, but they did it. Um, that that additional tax on electric vehicles wasn't in either original bill, uh, but since it's a free conference, that means they can kind of put in whatever they want to, and that's how they were able to do it. Um, the state still stands to lose about a billion dollars in revenue, but that is uh, the extra money that we had uh, in 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 the in the revenue that we have to spend this year. The Republicans had also called for a tax rebate. I mentioned this of uh, five hundred dollars for taxpayers immediately, but that seems like it's dead. Um, yeah, I don't know. The budget seemed like it was going to be a lot worse. Uh, I, I will say I expected a lot worse than what we got. Uh, it's still not good. Um, it represents a huge missed opportunity. We could have done so much more. And Governor Bashir laid out what was possible in his budget. But given that we are a state with a huge Republican legislative majorities, uh, you know, it could have been could have been a lot worse. So I don't know. Jasmine, any budget thoughts? I think that's kind of where I am, too. I I do think I expected it to be worse than it is. And I I think that the the raises for state workers are fantastic and really needed. I mean, like state social workers and a lot of other state workers make so little and haven't had a raise in years um, and public defenders, of course, definitely need races and are experiencing staffing crises um and i think most state offices are you know it's not just the the offices that i have experience with um so i think that that is something that was really good and a little bit surprising to me so it it's definitely not as bad as i thought yeah, just last thing about that. You're totally correct about uh, you know needing better salaries for for a lot of these workers. We definitely need those for teachers too. Teachers, uh, you know, are experiencing the same. They've been in a staffing crisis for years. Um, it's only gotten you know worse, I guess. Uh, and, and it would have been nice to have. Yeah, them. it right. It is. It is really terrible that everyone else gets it except teachers yeah yeah and, 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 to, and, and that's very deliberate yeah too and, and to be a hundred percent fair 
the way that the uh, Republicans wanted to handle this, they increased seek funding and they increased other uh, funding that, you know, by, by funding transportation at a higher level, that frees up other monies that the uh, that school districts can use. And they can use those for raises. And that was what they implied. Uh, the governor's budget, they, though, did call, did mandate that school districts increase salaries for teachers. And that's what I would have liked to have seen, at least. Um, okay, so here's a couple of other bills that's that passed yesterday. So the first one we wanted to talk about is HB 250. So Jasmine, we talked previously about the need for Kentucky State University to receive a bailout. Um, the state came through with $23 million in a bill, but it does come with significant strings. Uh, there has to be a comprehensive review of all of KSU's finances. The board has to receive training and constantly update the legislature. It's maybe a little paternalistic, but KSU's board has, I mean, I think it's fair to say really failed it in recent years. The bill did pass the House on Tuesday. Um, and I actually think it passed the Senate today. I'm looking at, again, Joe Sanka's Twitter from uh, 40 minutes ago. Uh, they were debating it. It passes uh, 36 to 0. So universal passage in the debate. Um, oh, here's a great quote. Robert Stivers talking about the Kentucky State University. They're known as the thoroughbreds. They don't need to be broke, but they need to be harnessed. So... You know, uh, a little bit of that paternalism I'm talking about right there. So that does look like it did pass the legislature today. So it's all the way through now. All right, next up, HB9. We have talked at length about HB9 and funding for charter schools. You know, we did two weeks in a row on it, I think last week and the week before. The Senate concurred with the House's uh, bill and on Tuesday sent the bill to Governor Bashir's desk, where he will certainly veto it. The bill passed the Senate uh, 22 to 14. All of the Democrats, of course, voted against it. But then Jared Carpenter, Stephen Meredith, Brandon Smith, Brandon Storm, Johnny Turner, and Philip Wheeler on the Republican side also voted no. Similar to the House, the GOP senators uh, that voted no are in eastern Kentucky. So that bill is going to be vetoed. It obviously it passed by one vote in the House. Uh, I think it would be very difficult, you know, after having taken the vote once to have one of those people kind of peel away. But, of course, you only have to get one person to change, and who knows, maybe they'll be able to do it. So those are the ones that I wanted to talk about. Keep keep us keep us going, Jasmine. What else do we have to talk about? All right, so we have a couple election security bills. So one of them is House Bill 564, and this was... I guess a relatively non-controversial election bill. It contains a three day, no excuse early voting and six day excused early voting. But then it does things like um, it prohibits early disclosure of unofficial ballot counts. It requires tamper resistant seals on voting equipment, prohibits voting machines from being connected to the internet. Um, And then it also contains provisions about like locking voting equipment and things like that it also makes it a felony to try to connect a voting machine to the internet the bill passed very easily um the only no votes in either chamber came from i would say a pretty specific part of the republican caucus it was uh savannah maddox and felicia rayburn in the house and then southworth and Schickel in the senate um so you're more people Trumpy. who yeah people who believe in the big lie like you Re- know republicans yeah yeah um so adrian southworth filed an amendment to the bill and spoke about it and damon thayer said that they didn't have time to debunk her but that most of her points were incorrect 
<laughs> wow. And when, when, when Damon Thayer is the voice of reason, right? Right. <laughs> um, and so the other one is Senate Bill 216. Um, and this one might go to conference. So it, it makes changes to election audits and it, like the, uh, like the house bill version ensures no connection to the internet for voting machine and other things like that. And so this bill passed the house with a committee sub and amendments. And then the Senate refused to concur. Um, Joe Sanka said that the hangup might be that in the, ha- the house added a floor amendment from Buddy Wheatley that took out a provision that prohibited a credit card from being used as a secondary form of ID. Um, And so that amendment might be the reason that the Senate refused to concur with the bill. And so that bill might have to go to conference. Um, And I will say I was, I was in Frankfurt um, in a committee hearing for this election security bill and, and got to hear Senator Southworth uh, discuss her amendments and all of her <laughs> and, glory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and um, some people I was with, it, it was their first time seeing anything like that and, and didn't know who she was. And they were like, I, was not following her. I didn't know what she was talking about. Incredible. And I'm like, <laughs> it's okay. Like, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what she was talking about. <laughs> so those are the election security bills. And um, we also have house bill three. That is the abortion bill. It passed both chambers with a committee substitute and two floor amendments from the Senate. And that's the bill that puts very strict, Restrictions on medications to terminate pregnancy, including a ban on allowing the medications to be shipped by mail. It also adds restrictions and additional standards on the judicial bypass, which allows a person under 18 to seek permission from a judge. It also includes extensive reporting requirements for abortion providers, including providing a reason for the abortion. Um, One of the amendments that passed changed the definition of probable gestational age from 20 weeks to 15 weeks and would prohibit abortion at probable gestation age. So I guess that's a thing the legislature gets to decide and not science. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, It also allows the attorney general and the Kentucky Board of Medical Licensure to enforce the provisions of the law. Um, It passed the Senate. 29 to zero. Um, but most of the Senate, I think all but one of the Senate Democrats didn't vote. And Alice Forgy Kerr also did not vote. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that was for any reason that they just didn't take the vote. They walked out. There was a walkout. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Cause it, I wasn't sure. <laughs> there was a walkout. Uh, and you know, of course they had other things to vote on. So they walked back in later. Uh, and, yeah. and you know, it's, it, it isn't like other States where if you, have a walkout you know you can actually impact the outcome of legislation it's just for show but yeah i mean um this uh this bill with with the new addition brings it out of line with roe v wade um so it will probably survive at least as long like i think it will be like struck down as long as roe v wade is the law which could be as short Mm -hmm. as like this summer so um it is it is kind of an abortion restriction and then we also have like all these trigger laws. Uh, what happens in the wake of 
a potential overturning of Roe v. Wade is very confusing. Um, we're going to have to all sort all of this out. So, you know, this is, I would say, not the last we've heard of HB3. You know, I'm sure that the ACLU Planned Parenthood are going to put up a really significant fight about this bill um, to protect the right of women in Kentucky to, to choose an abortion. Um, but, you know, uh, that is what the legislature has done this year. Yeah. So after that passed the Senate, the House concurred with those changes um, in a, on a 74 to 18 vote. The next one is House Bill 63, um, which mandates armed officers in schools. So it requires armed officers to be in schools by August 1st of this year. Um, and this is a bill sponsored largely by Louisville Republicans, um, you know, directed at, at JCPS, right. I think. Um, it passed though, with a Senate committee sub that would also allow the establishment of police departments for school districts. So um, I guess kids go to school in like juvenile detention facilities now. (laughs) Well, this was like something that was specifically asked for by LMPD chief, right? Isn't that something she had said before that JCPS needs its own police department? Yes, I think she did. Yeah. So that's probably why I was included. The next one um, is also a Louisville Republican bill. It's House Bill 314, which um, allows new cities to be formed in Jefferson County without Metro Council and um, sets a two-term limit for the Louisville mayor. Mayor Fisher wrote an op-ed in the Courier-Journal today explaining the ways that this bill could harm Louisville that I I thought was really good. Um, And I've never been the biggest Greg Fisher fan, but um, he said that it could leave a $50 million budget hole for services that, you know, like EMS, libraries, parks, things like that. Um, It could also cut the population in half, which would mean less funding. He used the CARES Act funding as an example, saying that we received $134 million more than we would have without the merger. Um, he also said that it would make Louisville difficult to do business with that, um, you know, most companies and developers that, um, he's talked to recently didn't know about this bill. And then when they found out have been really concerned about what it might mean. And then he also just made the point that the bill overrides a vote that occurred after long nonpartisan community discussions. Um, it did pass with a community sub to study the the merger and how the the metro government is set up. But in the op-ed, Mayor Fisher pointed out that if, if we're going to make substantial changes to the way our government is set up, it, it should be studied before doing that, not after. Yeah doing that um but that bill passed yeah and you know obviously everybody in louisville voted against it except for the republicans uh you know i the the whole i so i live in like a small city inside of louisville and um you know i know some of the folks that serve on our city council and they do good work and they're really passionate about my neighborhood but there's literally no benefit for it being a city versus a neighborhood association like i would get rid of it if i could like it is so redundant it is so stupid and i grew up in a city yeah I, I think I also live in a small city, but it's just three streets. Mine is two. Yeah, mine is two streets. Uh, and, and you know, I grew up in a bigger one. I grew up in Middletown, which is a much larger small mm-hmm. city. 
Um, but it, you know, and I know like some of these have like a really strongly ident- uh, you know, established identity. St. Matthews, J-Town, Shively, those are like bigger, older cities. Like J-Town's like right. what, like the seventh biggest city in Kentucky or something. But like it, creating new small cities is just nonsense like it is so worthless and useless uh, and the fact that like we're doing this with basically because jason nemus wants us to like <laughs> we said nice things about him in the interview uh so you should check that out but like we're we're doing we're making massive changes to our city government because like a few republicans that serve in the legislature want it uh and, and it's it's just very foolish but anyways you know, that's yeah. what happens when you elect this. The entire state elects Republicans and Louisville only elects Democrats. So our last two bills are gambling bills. So the first one is House Bill 607. That's the paramutual wagering tax changes. Um, so paramutual betting will now be taxed at 1.5%. The current rate of historical horse racing wagering. Um, and then... It raises the tax rate on advanced wagering deposits. So those are like the wagering deposits that you make on like the Twin Spires app. Um, But then it lowers the rate on simulcast betting. The bill would also eliminate an admission tax rate at racetracks and get rid of rounding down by 20 cents in betting. So um, the less controversial gambling bill passed um the other one is house bill 606 that's the sports gambling bill it has been given readings um, and could pass after the veto period if enough votes are found and so robert stivers is the senate president and we know that he doesn't have energy for this bill (laughs) (laughs) um but but damon thayer does um and so i think that's why it got a reading and so i think this probably comes down to like a couple votes if they if they gave it the reading it needed then maybe there's just a couple people in the senate who needed to be convinced and see if they can get it across the finish line so this may mean they're close but i don't know if there's you know time to to change people's minds yeah. um, in this session. And, and just to be clear, the only way that they will bring this to the floor is if a majority of the Republican caucus Right, it. they have the vote. The vote when we're talking about getting the votes, it. when you're talking about getting the votes, you do not mean like half the Senate. You mean half of the Republican caucus, which is not necessary. You only need Correct. like you will only need like a third of the Republican caucus. But that's not the way Robert Stivers wants to run the Senate. So right, and, and you, we don't we don't get to know who needs convincing. Nope, we don't because. Those people are, you know, are protected by their caucus, and that's why they're not calling a vote. Unless somebody from their caucus wanted to put them on blast, which they yeah. should. You know, they could absolutely do that. They wouldn't, but they would. Yeah. They could. So, so that's where we are as of last night. Yeah. Uh, we have it. I know a lot's been going on today too, Robert. We've both been at work. <laughs> Yeah, they they actually the House and the Senate right now as we're recording at six twenty eight p.m. are on a dinner break. Um, but so just some updates again, just reading straight from uh, you know reporters' Twitter accounts. Um, the anti-slap bill got passed over, so they're not going to have that. 
Um, they, uh, let's see, they voted to, the Senate passed HB 44, that is local school boards, including mental health absences and the student attendance policy. So that's good. That was something that happened very early in the session. Um, 248 prohibits statewide constitutional officers from expending public funds on a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of a bill. So that is taking direct aim at Andy Bashir and his many challenges to the constitutionality of bills from his office. Um, and so it did pass uh, on the Senate side. So that's going to get vetoed and overridden for sure. Uh, let's see, 250, that was, we already talked about 250, that was the Kentucky State bill. There's a SB 58, that's a Christmas tree bill, who knows what's going to be in that eventually, not a lot of reporting on that. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go over a lot more of this next week, probably, the, the final piece of the puzzle here, uh, but just as we're talking before the, the dinner break here, um, yeah. The, in the budget passed. So, okay. Um, yeah, that, that's where we're at with, with the legislature and the bills that are passing uh, as of yesterday and a few that have passed today. I did want to get in one quick hit before we get to our, our interview with Jim Higdon, and that's that Mayor Lou Marzian, who has served the Highlands neighborhood in the Louisville uh, area for almost 20 years. She's been the House member here. She decided to withdraw from her reelection as it became clear that the districts drawn by Republicans earlier this year would stand at least in 2022. That clears the path for Josie Raymond to become the state rep for that area. Um, I think, you know, this district only includes about 10% of her old district, including her house. So pretty clear that that was a targeted thing going on there. Marzian, though, made it very clear that she was not retiring and that if a fairer map were drawn and she and Rep. Raymond were not in the same district, she would run again. However, you know, if the maps hold, both she and Joni Jenkins are going to leave the legislature together after both winning their first general elections all the way back in 1994. So came in together. And I think Mary Lou Marzian actually was there a little bit before. Uh, she won a special election after Mike Ward w- went to Congress, but they won their first general elections together. Uh, and they are going to be going out together, it looks like. So, yeah, there you go. All right. Sad. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, it is sad. All right. Well, let's get to our interview with Jim Higdon. James Higdon is an author, a former journalist, and an entrepreneur. He has been published in national outlets like Politico, Esquire, The Washington Post, as well as um, nearly every journalistic outfit in the state of Kentucky. He's also the author of Cornbread Mafia and the Nearly Forgotten History of Portland, Kentucky. A few years ago, Mr. Higdon co-founded Cornbread Hemp, an organic CBD company based in Kentucky. Much of his writings focus on marijuana, and so we asked him to join us to talk about the fight for marijuana legalization in Frankfurt. And Mr. Higdon's father, Jimmy Higdon, is also a member of the Kentucky Senate. So, James Higdon, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Uh, that was a great intro. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. This is this is always fun. Yeah, we we didn't just secretly ask you on to ask when the follow up to uh, the Portland book was coming out, um, but we did want to talk to you about marijuana. So uh, we on our show have talked about two different marijuana bills this session. So the first one being HB five twenty one or SB one eighty six, which is like the Let's Grow, I think is what they're calling it. That bill that is, uh, you know, Rachel Roberts, the member of the House, I think is the main driver on that in that chamber. And then Morgan McGarvey and David Yates in the Senate are, are kind of behind that one. And then also HB one thirty six, which is Jason Nemus's medical marijuana bill that passed the House 
but seems to face uh, fading prospects in the Senate. So I wanted to first start by talking about 136, HB 136. That That's a bill, uh, you know, I think it's been, been criticized for being overly restrictive uh, for when medical marijuana can be used. Although even these very, very modest reforms seem to be really, really hard to get through the legislature. So you are obviously an advocate for ending the prohibition on cannabis. So, you know, you got to think about the balance between getting a good bill and and one that can even pass. So so tell us how you strike that balance and how you advocate for for the end of a prohibition on cannabis while understanding that we are working with the legislature that we have. Right. We're working with the legislature that we have is a great, you know, that's that's a great way to set this up. the bill is incredibly restrictive. Um, It's not ideal. Uh, The sponsors negotiated with um, advocates against it behind closed doors and presented a bill that doesn't really seem to pass a lot of tests for, um, you know, even if it's economically viable, given it's, it's, it's restrictive nature. Um, There are some things about it that are good. Um, And as we know, um, Politics is a game of inches. You, you take what you get and then you come back the next day and you fight for more. So, you know, like even though it's not ideal, it's what we got. And Jason Nemus, even though the bill that he crafted is not ideal, he's done some real heroes work getting this to where he's got it. Yeah, I think that that's totally fair. I mean, he's been advocating for for this bill for uh, medical marijuana for quite a while, for several years. And, you know, this is, I think, just the second year that this has passed the House. And sometimes these things take a few years. So hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Um, Hopefully. Uh, But I did, I mean, just to lean in a little bit more to the, the question about, like, what we have, what would be acceptable, you know, the tension between... Uh, you know, this this specific tension about like getting a good bill versus getting any bill was really on display dur- during the floor debate for 136 in the House when Rachel Roberts, you know, called for a floor amendment to add PTSD as a diagnosis for which marijuana could be used. So, you know, just specifically talking about that, um, do you think it's worth having a bill if it doesn't include PTSD? I mean, is that uh, what are kind of like those red lines where you're like, well, it's not even worth it at this point? It was surprising to me when the pared down Nemus bill was introduced that PTSD was not included in the qualifying conditions portion of the bill because it's such an easy layup for a party like the Republican Party that claims such lip service in support of veterans and first responders that PTSD was not included in the bill. Um, I, I, I I'm a very busy person, uh, but I did manage to watch the live stream of the floor debate and found uh, the introduction of of that floor amendment to be very moving. Uh, the state rep from Northern Kentucky who introduced it, you told me her name. What, who, who is she again? Rachel Roberts. Her advocacy, not just for veterans and first responders, but also for survivors of sexual violence as people with PTSD who would benefit from medical marijuana, I found to be in, just um, really touching and important. And something that everyone needs to sort of internalize in terms of who uh, would benefit from uh, access to safe access to legal medical cannabis. It, it like that floor amendment and the passage of that floor amendment on the bill m- means a lot. It means a lot to me, and it means you know a, a lot to people who 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 carry a clinical diagnosis of PTSD in the state of Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. But, but to answer your question, is it worth it to pass it without it? Yes, pass pass it. We can always go in and add qualifying conditions down the road. Colorado did not become a fully legal state overnight. 
They started with a very restrictive medical marijuana program. They became a robust medical marijuana program that became full adult, full adult, adult legalization. Uh, it's a process that occurs over time once the people and in, in the, uh, the representatives get used to uh, each stage of this process. It's not something that's going to happen overnight like a light switch. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it certainly isn't. Uh, and, and I do think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of evidence that going this route is has been successful in a lot of other states across the country. Um, but, you know, there is a bill uh, that exists that would go a lot further, and that's the Democratic, pro- uh, you know, bill, the, the Let's Grow uh, bill, which, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> no chance to pass now, really probably no chance to pass in the near future. But, you know, if the federal government does manage to legalize marijuana, which, you know, may, may or may not be uh, something that happens in, in the near future, it, it, you know, this bill, the Let's Grow bill, could help start the conversation about how to regulate the use of marijuana here in Kentucky. So uh, have you had a chance to investigate this bill? What do you think about the framework that it sets up? And if Kentucky does find itself in a situation where we do have to regulate the the sale and use of marijuana, uh, what do you think about it as, as a framework? I, mean, I think it's a great framework. And if I understand what the let's and let's grow stands for, it's legalize, expunge, treat, and tax. Yep. Um, so, you know, the expunge portion of that is very important. No one should be carrying around marijuana felonies when marijuana is legal. Uh, and having that wrapped up in uh, in a legalization bill uh, speaks volumes to the Kentucky Democratic Party that they're thinking about this um, in a correct way. Um, on the federal level, the Moore Act, which is basically the same thing in at a national level in Congress, appears to be headed for a floor vote in the House on Friday. Um, so we'll get to see, um, how the Kentucky delegation votes on that. The last time it was up for a vote, I believe Yarmouth was the only yes vote, even though, um, other members of our delegation give lip service to this issue. When it comes down to it, they don't vote for it. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how the Republicans in Kentucky vote for, uh, the Moore Act on Friday. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question about uh, federal efforts. That's not something we really track that often. But the MORE Act seems like uh, it's something that's happening in Congress. uh, And it seems like the most likely congressional uh, movement around marijuana. So are there any other things in Congress that you're tracking? And is there anything on the executive side uh, that that you think might have an impact on on how marijuana is regulated here in Kentucky? I mean, from, you know, on the executive side, like, you know, President Biden does not seem to be prioritizing this in any way. Yeah. Um, to the surprise of no one. Um, so that's super disappointing. But where we are, the thing that I'm tracking at the federal level is the next farm bill. Um, we've legalized hemp through the through two consecutive farm bills. Uh, the next farm bill is currently kind of um, being thought about in agricultural subcommittees. Now will be drafted next year. Um, typically runs every five years, uh, farm bill to farm bill. Um, and the talk is to increase the THC threshold from the 0.3% it's at now, uh, to 1.0%, um, which is, you know, a step in the right direction. The entire prohibition of cannabis at the federal level hangs on one line in the farm bill that limits the level of THC in legal hemp as opposed to cannabis. Um, and, if it takes five consecutive farm bills to legalize cannabis outright, then that's that's the path we're on. But the farm bill is the path that 
Mitch McConnell and his infinite wisdom has given us as a means to incrementally legalize cannabis in America. So hemp is the next thing we wanted to talk to you about. The last time that we spoke to you, it was in the midst of the crash in hemp prices across the country. And it was the winter and a lot of farmers were talking about reducing or eliminating the acreage that, that they were planting in hemp. Um, and you're an owner of cornbread hemp and you operate inside this market. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's like trying to you know, run a business in the midst of this young and maybe volatile market and whether you think there's anything um, the federal or state government should do about regulating the hemp crop? That's a very good question. I've got thoughts. Um, <laughs> so as as a brand owner, uh, co-founder uh, who who's making products and purchasing hemp to make those products, um, it actually puts a brand like us in a very good position because hemp prices are low. Uh, but farmers got absolutely screwed over the last few years. Uh, politicians uh, ran a really good game, told farmers a really good line that hemp was the next crop. Lots of farmers set aside their tobacco bases and went all in on hemp and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, each. You know, like mm -hmm. two to a farmer just lost their shirts. Yeah. Um, on hemp production because they were promised things by by, by politicians that did not that did not bear out. Partly because the FDA one assumed uh, the the industry assumed people assumed it was assumed that the FDA would wade in uh, upon passage of the 2018 Farm Bill in 2019 to issue regulations surrounding CBD products that regulated them as dietary supplements or herbal supplements. Something that gave them some some codified. Um, understanding in like on the shelf um in retail um and that has not happened um today the fda issued seven warning letters to cbd companies for um just mentioning the fact that there exists studies on cbd preliminary studies relative to covid19 from what i could tell from these letters these these cbd brands didn't say that their particular product cured covid although we've seen that in the past um, these were just brands that were informing people who visited their website that these studies existed. And the FDA sent them a warning letter, which basically means that they're subject to FTC fines and they're essentially blackballed for major retailers. And, and, and these retailers, major retailers, big box retailers, major pharmacies, major grocery are not stocking ingestible CBD products until there's FDA uh, regulations. And that's really... Um, put an artificial damper on the growth of the marketplace. And that's hurt Kentucky farmers specifically. The FDA's lack of movement on regulations is hurting Kentucky farmers. And the promises that politicians made regarding um, the promise of hemp as a new crop um, has been completely undermined by the FDA. And those politicians who made those promises to farmers have not done the follow-up to pressure the FDA to issue those regulations. Right. And so also since we spoke to you last, Delta 8 has become a major cannabis story. And so Delta 8 is a version of THC that can be synthesized from legal hemp and kind of exists in a legal gray area. So as a seller of hemp products, has Delta 8 been a good thing for your business? Cornbread Hemp does not um, sell any Delta 8 products, uh, primarily because we're a certified organic brand and uh, the Delta 8 synthetic process is uh, beneath the integrity of the organic process. It uh, requires um, 
basically, to make Delta 8 THC, you take uh, CBD isolate, and then you run that CBD isolate through a chemical process, usually an acid bath, and that changes the compound, the chemical compound structure of CBD into Delta 8. And if it's done correctly, it's done correctly. If it's done incorrectly, it leaves a lot of residual contaminants in that product. And consequently, there's been some hospital visits um, hmm. uh, from people who use uh, badly synthesized Delta 8. And a lot of labs that do third-party lab tests have stopped uh, even testing Delta 8 because uh, they don't, um, you know, they don't like what they see. Uh, so, so Delta 8 is a product of prohibition. It's a loophole going around uh, the farm bill's designation that Delta 9 THC, which is naturally occurring THC, is the only restricted cannabinoid. So if you have a, a synthetic isomer of THC like Delta 8 or Delta 10 or THCO um, that you can market, the farm bill doesn't outright um, ban any sort of cap on the, the amount of, of that cannabinoid in a product. So um, other people are going at it like gangbusters. Uh, the market and the demand for Delta 8 is really a product of prohibition in pro prohibitive markets like here in Kentucky. If uh, full strength cannabis were available uh, safely in dispensaries, there would be no market for Delta 8. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, I mean, lots of states now are trying to change their laws to regulate Delta 8 THC in the same way that they regulate Delta 9 THC. So obviously, like, that would be a step backwards for the legalization movement. Do you think, um, you know, a bill to change the regulation of Delta 8 might come to Kentucky soon? Oh, it has. It's uh, SB 170 uh, passed the Senate. I think it's hung up in the House. Uh, sponsored by Paul Hornback, he, I think, issued or told House leadership to hold it until he could amend it, even after it passed the Senate, because the feedback he got from farmers and businesses um, in Kentucky was overwhelmingly negative. I believe he was carrying the water of um, some other folks in Frankfurt on this issue and didn't quite understand what he was getting himself into. So even though we don't, corporate him doesn't sell Delta 8. It's not really our lane. It's not real. We don't really have a dog in this fight. It would be a step backward for mm -hmm. legalization, but also the whole reason it exists is because people want Delta 9 and can't get it. You know, it, if yeah. we had safe access to naturally occurring Delta 9, they would, the, the market for Delta 8 would be eliminated. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? That uh, Delta 8 doesn't need to exist except like in the, this entire synthetic process that it has to go through, which you know, like you mentioned, can potentially be dangerous. Uh, we would be able to eliminate that altogether if we just had a sane uh, approach to regulating a plant that grows well in Kentucky. Um, Jasmine actually asked me to check to make sure that that bill wasn't I, uh, filed. I told, yeah, I told Robert I thought there was a bill. I couldn't find it, so I question. was like, I looked, I looked for it. I couldn't find it, so I, no, I, no, it no, is, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here. I'm here to nerd out with you. There you go. Um, All right. Yeah. On, on hemp related legislation. I, I looked for I looked for marijuana and I looked for cannabis. I did not look for hemp, which that was that was the problem. Sure. OK, so, uh, yeah, that, thank you very much for joining us. Like this is this has been really helpful. I love to talk about agriculture. I love to talk about, uh, you know, this really important issue of legalization of marijuana. So if people want to get more information about you, if people want to check out Cornbread Hemp, read your books, join the movement to legalize cannabis here in Kentucky. Uh, tell people how, how they can do that. Uh, they can say hello by visiting cornbreadhemp.com. Uh, they can find us on Twitter at Cornbread Hemp and on Instagram at Cornbread underscore Hemp. Um, we had to add the underscore because Instagram killed our original account. 
Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, it's just the fun part about living in this market, right? You're just uh, you're... It's one of the it's one of the benefits of being on the cutting edge of the paradigm shift. Sometimes people just don't understand what we're up to. Yeah. All right. Well, Jim Higdon, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jasmine. Thanks, Robert. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.